The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. If you just joined in, I did put some uh, a link in the chat so that you can get some of the resources for these discussions we're having on the Ten Beautiful Qualities of the Heart, the Paramis, and the specific one we've been looking at these last couple of weeks is renunciation. And um, as I mentioned, I think last week when I first started talking about it, you know, it's, it's just interesting how we can have a little bit of a reaction. There's an old cartoon where somebody's climbing a mountain in search of the wise person who lives in the cave. They finally get to the top of the mountain, they introduce themselves to the wise person and ask for a teaching and the teacher, this wise person says a few words, simplicity, self-restraint, renunciation. And uh, <laughs> you can just imagine that wasn't exactly what that person who went through the ordeal of climbing the mountain wanted to hear. And, you know, the, as the joke goes, like it was, is there anybody else I can talk to? And there's another story I used to tell in the introduction to mindfulness class where somebody's fallen off a cliff and is just barely hanging in on a branch. And even as they're hanging there, there's the branches starting to break and the boulder field hundreds and hundreds of feet below them you know, it's just waiting for this person. So the person just screams out, God, please help me. And does that a few times. And finally, the clouds separate and God appears as light and says, okay, I'm here to help. And the person, oh, thank God you're here. Please help me. And God says, okay, just do what I say. And the person says, of course, whatever. And God says, let go. <laughs> and it's the same punchline. The person says, well, is there anybody else up there? Because letting go scares us. And in a way, even though holding on, being tight, being attached is stressful, we all on some level know that being caught, being attached, being tight, we all know that that's stressful, but in a way we're addicted to the drama of it or to the promise of it, that somehow, yeah, I know that my desiring and craving and attachments have failed me over and over and over and over and over again, but I'm not quite ready to let go because we don't, you know, we when we have let go, we generally swing all the way into this um, kind of judgmental, repressive frame of mind. Life sucks, nothing is worthy of grasping, but it's really from this place of aversion and it can, you know, in spiritual circles get expressed as asceticism or in our ordinary circles, you know, where we are judgmental of people who have a nice thing, like think of them as some sort of idiot. Oh, they think that's going to make them happy. They've got a nice car or they've got a nice this or a nice that. 
Well, don't they know that beauty or cars or this or that is fleeting? Only going to end up disappointing them. Oh, they've got such a cute dog. But don't they realize that in 12 years that dog is going to die? <laughs> you know, that's a pretty depressive, negative view to be carrying around with us. It's in a way just as deluded, even though it sounds right, it's just as deluded as thinking having this or that is going to save us. Both are, they're both not to be trusted because they're both fixed views. It's like the fixedness of being right. We're, we're trying to save ourselves by being right. And what the Buddha discovered is not this sort of repression of asceticism. Life is bad. Sense experience is bad. You know, try to have as little as possible. There's a passage in the Dhammapada, which is one of those early collection of verses from the Buddhist tradition. And it reads like this. Even though well adorned, if one lives at peace, calm, controlled, assured, and pure, then one is a renunciate. Even though well adorned, and part of that is an in Indian culture, maybe even today, but for sure back at the time of the Buddha, the wealth was sometimes worn as jewelry. That was sort of your your wealth. You kept it close. <laughs> so even if we have, someone has a lot, if one lives at peace with a mind that isn't confused by having a nice house or a nice car, then one is a true renunciate. Because it's really about this, you know, renunciation, the happiness of renunciation, which is really the flavor of the whole path that the Buddha taught. You know, when we think about the path that the Buddha taught, there's the path of sila, this deep resonant valuing of non-harming, of really caring about how we're relating to others, how we're relating to the community we live in, how we're relating to the wider world, how we're relating to the species, the other creatures that we share the planet with, and how we relate to the planet itself. And that level, that first level of practice, sila, ethical conduct, it's all about letting go, like letting go of our grosser impulses to take what's not ours, or letting go of our disconnection where we think how we shop doesn't matter, doesn't affect other people or what we do with our money, or what temperature we put the thermostat on, right? So this is the level of a sila. And so to really cultivate this value of non-harming in a way that's liberating, we need this capacity for renunciation. We have to be, let, be able to let go of my impulse to take what I want to do what I want, because there's a more resonant happiness of being able to restrain myself, refrain from doing what I want, right? Because doing what we want, I don't know if you've noticed, it doesn't lead to happiness. <laughs> this is the, one of the few great things about our information age where 
everything's on the internet. I was just listening to morning uh, weekend edition, the National Public Radio program, and I, I ended up shutting it off in the middle of the story, but it was about Britney Spears. And just this, I mean, here's somebody, you know, who had a lot of success and wealth, assumably, and was, you know, had a troubled life. I'm not so, so sure right now, but um, certainly back a few years back. And, um, and we have so many examples of people, you know, who are getting, having a lot, who don't seem to be any happier than the people who don't have a lot. I mean, clearly there's a minimum that we need of shelter and warmth and food and social connection and safety. But it isn't clear that having more makes us happy. But it definitely is clear that the heart continues to want more. Even, I mean, what's so surprising, and maybe you had a little flavor of it during the sit earlier, and you can check right now, because it's actually something we can pay attention to, right? The contentment with what we have right now, the moment that's arising for each of us right now, that's what we have right now. We have this experience being known. And it's actually possible for us right now to be content with the experience that's here right now. We just have to know what to pay attention to. And the tendency of our mind is to pay attention to discontentment. The promise, if only, then I'd be even happier. If my body, if I had a more comfortable chair, or if Mark's or the center's bandwidth was better and the video and the sound was better, then I'd be happy. Or whatever it was, whatever it would be, then. If I was a little bit younger, if only I had started the practice when I was in my 20s, then I would be, can you imagine, would be floating, you know. We wouldn't, wouldn't be able to sleep at night because we'd be so radiant, it'd be so bright in the bedroom. Everyone would love us, we would love everyone. So the Part of uh, what we can talk about uh, for those who stay for the small groups today, and then just generally with your Dharma friends, with your good friends in the week, the Buddha really praised this, you know, as a topic for conversation to talk about fewness of wants or renunciation, contentment. You know, there's a whole list of things you don't talk about, politics, wars, food, you know, the, the, which basically all the things we generally talk about, <laughs> movies, you know, or entertainments. They didn't have movies back then, of course. But, but one of the, and then there are too many things that the Buddha encourages people to talk about. But one of them is to talk about contentment or fewness of wants and renunciation, the happiness, the joy of renunciation. This is a very good topic for conversation. And I really encourage, if, even if you don't stay for the small groups at the end that Shannon and Nancy uh, help us organize, um, but just to find, you know, in, including just even in your own journaling, if that's what you do, but just find 
try to broach that topic with a friend you think would be open to it. Like just exploring, because it's so puzzling how that is. An example I give a, a friend of mine, I, way back when I was a special ed teacher in, in Minneapolis Public Schools in the early 90s. And uh, and one of the uh, teachers in the school where I was working, um, a young guy with a couple kids, a wife, and he wanted one of these really scooped up motorcycles, you know, that you don't, you kind of almost are aligned on the motorcycle. So it looks like a motorcycle you'd race with. I don't know anything about motorcycles. Anyway, but it, there was just this very revealing moment I just remember so well. And because uh, he had, you know, had to make a real compelling argument to his partner why he should buy this motorcycle. And, you know, eventually it made enough sense for the family that he got it. So he has this really fancy motorcycle in his garage. And and then a couple months later, he we were just talking, he comes and he, he pulls out this magazine and, and it was really beside himself. He said, I don't understand what's going on, but I really want this other motorcycle. <laughs> and it wasn't like he wanted to sell the one he had. He just wanted another souped up motorcycle. And he knew it was crazy. He really got, but he also got that his mind was obsessed. And I, I mean, I think that was a real starting point where we catch ourselves, we catch ourselves in that lie. If only that I'll be happy because it's so, um, it just stands out as being false. Now, a lot of the times it doesn't stand out. We're just too busy, too distracted to realize how incessant and repeating that, uh, that lie is. The if only, then I'll be happy. So we can, this is like a place with our good friends, especially those friends who are interested in spiritual practice. They'll get this. Just to swap these stories where we're, We've caught our mind in that lie. Basically, part of the mind is telling us, if you do this, you're going to be happy. If you have an affair with this person, you're going to be happy. This is going to be great. You know, or if you do this thing, or if you do that thing, or if you have another couple of drinks, you know, or you should just watch a few more episodes. It doesn't matter You'll get out, you'll find a time to catch up on your sleep tomorrow. This will make you happy. This is a good show. You deserve to watch this. Right? And I see some of your faces are smiling because you know the truth that this is the often, or at least some of the time, the territory our mind is in. And there's something profoundly revealing to have this conversation with other people where we sort of share that space, that mutual space of delusion, but we're honest about it. So it's really non-delusion because we're honest. Oh yeah. And here's the thing. I mean, the more we practice uh, this wisdom awareness, this mindfulness stuff, the more this insight dawns in the mind, there isn't one me or one you. There are these, you know, different patterns, different sub-programs, different personalities. But this, I'm not talking about uh, mental illness, you know, something you'd find in the manual of, 
you know, mental health, mental illness, what is that, DSM-4, whatever it is. So it's not that kind of pathology, it's just normal that we have these different patterns. So when we see something operating, it has its own coherence. It looks like me, it smells like me, it acts like me, but we're seeing it as this sort of independent, natural phenomena of our personality. You know, that like this friend of mine was saying about the motorcycle, he was aware of this obsessive pattern in his mind. He, it was real to him, but he was beginning to see it wasn't self. It didn't refer back to the absolute true me. It was just a little vortex or whirlpool that, uh, you know, that, that has its causes and conditions. I see Dia put in the chat, the mini-me, <laughs> except there are many of these mini-me's, these vortexes, these patterns that when the conditions are just right, they emerge. Maybe one of our defense, one of our patterns is being defensive. One of them is being sort of proud and boastful. Yeah, but we have to have an honest and loving relationship with all of these, even the most disgusting and despicable patterns. Because when we hate them, we hate them because we think they're me, self. So we're deluded. When we're kind and understanding, but also appropriately parental, like, I see you're there, I get why you're there, it's lawful, but I'm not going to give you the keys to the house or to the car, you know? I'm not going to forget you're just a pattern in the heart and mind. And that you don't, just because you look like you know what you're talking about, doesn't mean in any way that you're wise. You know how it is with our loved ones, whether it's a good friend or a, a lover or a partner or a child, one of your kids or sibling or whatever it might be. But there are some times when we're so upset, so angry, we really want to hurt them. You know, we, but we'll lie to ourselves. But see, once we understand the mind as these semi-independent, impersonal vortexes or patterns, then we can understand that pattern is what it is. It's really unskillful. It's not to be trusted. It's not self. It's my responsibility, because it's here, expressing itself in this moment, in this so-called heart and mind. So I have to take responsibility not to cause harm with it, but it's not me. So this is that level of sila where we're, we're developing the happiness of non-harming, the happiness of harmony, the bliss of blamelessness on this, just on this ordinary level of relationship, which is so essential. And there's really, it's really not possible to develop uh, a deeper spiritual life if we're not including this level, this more ordinary social level of spiritual practice, there's really no going forward. And it's not like we somehow master the social level and then we're on to the more subtle levels of spiritual practice. All of the more 
deep, subtle, refined levels of spiritual awakening are actually expressed, manifest in this level of social relations. It's, it's really always where we see clearly how deep our work has been or how much work is left to do because this ordinary level isn't working very well. And it doesn't mean it's working well because, you know, we're a privileged human being and, you know, the world was made for us, like myself as a white male, you know. It certainly doesn't seem easy until you start waking up and you realize, yeah, maybe life isn't easy for anyone, but it's certainly easier for some than for others. And just to kind of get that sense of... But I'm not talking about that level of ease. I'm talking about like even when we're in the middle of a breakup or a profound loss or somebody's really hurting our feelings or our body isn't working very well, that there's some real capacity to let go of being tight around that difficulty. Doesn't mean that there isn't that difficulty. It just means the mind or wisdom isn't adding anything, any resistance to the ordinary difficulties that come even with the most privileged, good fortune of us, right? Because life is difficult even for those of us who have a good run. So <clears throat> that's that first level of sila or ethical conduct. But then when we get into the more refined aspects of spiritual practice, like turning inward and realize I'm not just responsible for my social relationships out in the world. I'm also rela uh, responsible for the inner relationships, like the environment of my own heart and mind. So sila, ethical conduct, this moral sensitivity and integrity that we talked about in the previous weeks, that's really about how we relate to the outer world. We have equal responsibility, equal incentive to take responsibility for our inner space. And here we find that renunciation is essential. You, I'm sure you noticed in the guided sit today. We're sitting and the impulse to think about when is a sick going to be over? Or when is Mark going to stop talking? Or when is, you know, whatever it might be. And in any of those impulses, the mind can take the bait and mentally proliferate, think about whatever that stimuli or that impulse was. Or the mind can let go. So it's basically like the mind sees an off-ramp. I can start planning, I can worry, I can fantasize, right? So it sees the off-ramp. It knows there's an off-ramp. It sees the carrot that's dangling over the off-ramp, like this would be fun to think about, to worry about, you know, the, the sort of juice of the drama that would be there with that mental proliferation. And the mind or wisdom chooses to let go of having to do that off-ramp and comes back to the body, comes back to the breathing, comes back to the ordinary simplicity of the present moment. 
because the mind is curious enough, like when we're doing this inner work of working with our the environment of the heart instead of our social environment, then just like in sila with ethical conduct, we can restrain ourselves from saying what isn't helpful to say and doing what isn't helpful to do. In this inner work, we can refrain from identifying with these impulses to worry, to plan, to fantasize, to doubt. Doesn't mean there, are, there aren't those impulses. How many, during that 35 minute sit, how many impulses arose in our mind? How many off-ramps? I mean, hundreds, maybe thousands, right? And we took some of them. And if you didn't think you took any, either your practice is very developed or you're diluted. Because for most of us, there are all kinds of off-ramps, tendencies, and we take some of them, and then we maybe we're just part of the way down that off-ramp, or maybe we're all the way down and we've been lost in thought for a minute or more, 10 minutes even, but at some point the mind wisdom wakes up, oh, thinking, thinking is being known. The mind is entangled here, and there's the present moment. And the initial moment of the present moment is just realizing having been lost in thought feels like this. Having been entangled with this drama is like this now. So we're feeling the karmic effect, the karmic fruits of having been lost in thought. That's how we return to the present moment because that's what's real. Don't rush back to your meditation object. Take at least a moment and we we renounce the identification with the drama, whatever the thinking's about. And the way we manifest that renunciation is we're willing to feel the karmic fruits of having been lost in thought. Oh, now it feels like this. So we're kind of assessing the damage to the body and the mind, right? Because Because we've been thinking in ways that have been stressful, tight, even when we're thinking ordinary thoughts, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly to you, it lays down stress in the body and the mind. Most mental activity, because there's almost always some identification with mental activity, it's not that mental activity itself is stressful. Mental activity is like any other movement in nature. It can be seamless and not a problem at all. But when mental activity, because it's so seductive, given, you know, it's like the, the point I'm making here is that the tendency of our mind is to take our thoughts personally. So, of course, the mind gloms on, identifies with mental activity, because it seems like it's me saying that, me thinking that. And that identification is why there's always stress, or almost always stress, with thought. So just in doing our basic meditation practice, not even the deeper levels of meditation, there's so much practice of renunciation. Because every time an off-ramp appears, whether we're already down it, or we're just seeing it there just a few inches away, like that tug to go down that avenue of thought, and we get to practice, I could do that, I could think that, but I, I'm going to choose 
to stay with the body, stay with the present moment. And there's a little joy. Ah, I don't have to do that. One example I love of this, some of you have been at Insight Meditation Society, IMS in Massachusetts, place I've spent at least a couple of years of my life on retreat over the many years of my practice. And I teach there regularly, almost every year. And um, there's a beautiful three mile, maybe three and a half mile loop that a lot of people walk in the middle of the day when they're on retreat. And a lot of the staff people also walk. And one of my teachers and someone I teach with, Kamala Masters, a wonderful teacher for Common Ground folks over the years as well, uh, she would do the walk, walk that loop when she was out teaching or sometimes when she was out practicing. And there used to be, the dog has died, but there used to be a dog at a certain place in this three mile loop. And the dog's habit was like if somebody started walking, it would follow them. And then because there are a lot of people on retreat, there would people be walking the other direction and then it would turn and follow them. And there was always somebody walking the loop. So that dog felt compelled to always be following someone. And Kamala, being a really sensitive human being, wise, loving human being, uh, noticed this over the many years and months of being out there, doing her practice there and teaching there. And so one day, out of this sort of beautiful and fierce compassion, she looked at, and Kamala's raised uh, a number of children and, and has that sort of powerful matriarchal energy. And she looks at the, this dog and says, stay, or something like that. I forget exactly what her words are. But basically, honey, you don't need to incessantly, obsessively follow. And that, that energy, like the dog's realization, oh, I could follow them, but I don't have to follow them. I could think about this, but I don't have to think about this. I could solve that problem that's looming in my life, but I don't have to. I could regurgitate that thing that happened two years ago, but I don't have to. I could speculate about what's going to happen to tomorrow, but I don't have to. And if, you, if we don't start sensing the happiness of this level of renunciation, we don't really get very far in our meditation practice. So really, in the weeks ahead, you know, as we continue to talk about renunciation, get very familiar with this particular movement of renunciation where we see an off-ramp in the mind, but we realize, I don't have to go there. I could go there. It's not like it would be... A, some days it's useful to think about that, right? Some moments, but not now. Because in this part of our set, our formal meditation time, we're choosing, the part of the training is choosing not to go on any off-ramps because we're training the heart to be devoted to the present moment. And when we're lost in thought, we're unaware that this is how it is now. That's what it means to be lost in thought. The mind is absorbed in the content of whatever we're thinking about, past, present, future, that there's no space in the mind that realizes this is a thought being known here and now. Because we're lost in it, absorbed in it. And in a way, that's a bubble. It's its own reality. 
Now there's even a deeper level of renunciation that I'll talk about uh, next week. But let's just work on these first two levels, the level of non-harming, like to live harmoniously, to live with a real devotion to justice for all, like really caring about how our actions, how we relate, affects those we share the planet with, then we really need this capacity to live simply and to refrain. So we may have the privilege to take more, but that doesn't mean we have to take more. Even like when you're eating with a friend, I could take that bigger piece, but I don't have to. It's not even that it would be wrong to take the bigger piece of pie, but it's so empowering, it's so liberating not to need to take the bigger piece of dessert, to leave it. You know, I could tell my partner all about my day, but maybe I'll just create some space for them to talk about their day. And again, it's not like it's wrong for you to do it, but it's really, uh, it's there's a real place of joy in not needing to take what we can take. So please explore these two areas uh, and joys of renunciation this, this week. So we start building our own confidence that there really is a joy of renunciation. This isn't just a bunch of spiritual hooey, you know, it, it's real. And it's, and it really creates this uh, more resonant, in Western terms, we'd call it self-esteem. We just feel good about our life because we know how to access a good feeling, a trustworthy and more resonant feeling. And ch instead of chasing false promises, right, we have a more resonant happiness, which is the happiness of letting go or non-attachment. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.